Episode 39, David Womack from Practice Management Institute talks about coding, the language of healthcare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Practice Management Institute, or PMI, teaches physicians and their staffs how to run a more productive, profitable, and compliant medical office. What I didn't quite realize about the back end of an office is that is how much it impacts patient care. And that's what I talk with David Womack about today. He is the CEO and president over at PMI. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. If you have a stellar idea for a guest that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, please tweet us. I am pleased to welcome David Womack from Practice Management Institute, or PMI. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, David. Thank you, Stacy. Good morning. You have had a long career in the, would, would you call it the coding space? Really, I guess the training and education space. The training and education space. Do you want to talk about how exactly you got to becoming the president and CEO of PMI? Years ago, I, I worked for a company that sold office products to healthcare professionals. The pegboard accounting system, ledger cards, super bills. It's funny, years ago, I used to sit in meetings and people knew what those things were. Present day, I sit in some meetings and people look at each other and go, what in the world is he talking about? But some, some people out there will remember the old one right system and will remember ledger cards and super bills. Those are things that I used to sell to a a physician's practice, a physician's office. And that just led to an opportunity with PMI about 24 years ago now. So you started when you were a child. Uh, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Training wheels still on the bicycle, going up and down the street. You know, I know Practice Management Institute, you are a large and, and sprawling organization with many tendrils, but could you just give the, the, the synopsis on, on what you're all about? Yeah, Stacy. at a very high level, we're, we're a training company. We teach people how to run an outpatient physician's practice. We teach people about billing and coding, interacting with insurance companies and Medicare, how to get paid, how to manage a practice, the skills on the business side of the medical practice. That's what we teach. Originally, before we had started talking, whenever I thought about coding, I considered it, I would have to say very myopically, a skill that had limited impact on patient care. But in our earlier conversations, you definitely have, have set me straight, my friend. I think you and I, uh, I, I made reference to coding being the language of healthcare. Coding is the really the only way for people and machines to interact with one another to understand what was really wrong with a patient and what was done to fix a patient. So there are two sides of that coding equation. There's a diagnostic set of codes and then there's a procedural set of codes. And that really drives virtually everything. It drives uh, payment. It drives care. It's the one way that one office to another office communicates what was done. 
So let's just dive into that a little bit more deeply for, for those of us that are somewhat, let's just say, slightly more than clueless about <laughs> how coding works. What is what is exactly diagnostic coding? And then I'm going to ask you what exactly procedural coding is. You know, what's the difference there? Diagnostic is what's wrong with you. When you come in and present with a sore throat or a broken arm, that's why you came into the practice or that's why you were seeking care. You get diagnosed based on you know, what we're trying to fix, what we actually do to fix you. That's the procedural part of it. Now, sometimes that's just FaceTime with the physician. Uh, the physician is diagnosing you. If you certainly do have a sore throat, we'll run a test and see if you have strep and then we'll prescribe medicine. All of that gets encapsulated into a procedural code. In the case of a broken arm, broken limb, uh, laceration, there may be, you know, different types of procedural codes to identify exactly what was done, what was stitched up, what was, what did we put a cast on? And how does this relate to payers? So in other words, when a payer is trying to figure out how much the practice deserves, what do they start with? The, the diagnostic code or the procedural code or some blend thereof? You know, it can be a blend thereof. You know, I start talking above my pay grade really quickly when you get this deep into it. But if the procedural code was, uh, you know, that I put a splint on a sprained finger, that's going to be quite different uh, and quite a different level of service than if I repaired a broken limb and put a cast on it. If you can kind of see that in your mind's eye. So in other words, you know, I'm thinking of like obesity, for example, which is obviously impacting this country in a big way. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, the payers don't, for example, recognize obesity as a diagnosis that they recognize in, in many cases. So therefore, any procedure which is then tagged to that diagnosis won't get covered because of the, the particular diagnostic code that was used. I'm just kind of fascinated by how diagnostic codes might be changed in order to meet financial obligations, but at the same time be impacting patient care or the, the patient gets incorrectly coded in order for that patient to be cared for. But then down the road, that causes other issues. I've, I've, got a, I've got a really good one. Uh, you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There is a diagnostic code for hypertension, the actual disease, you know, hypertension. There is also a different code when a woman is pregnant and presents with uh, hypertension because of the pregnancy. So on the one hand, we have hypertension as a disease. On the other hand, we have hypertension as a condition of something else. So in this case, this woman's pregnant. She's hypertensive because of the pregnancy. And those two things are coded differently. What happens often in an OBGYN practice is that the other code, the disease code, is used and entered into the medical record. Now, in the medical record and at the insurance company and wherever that record travels, this person has been misdiagnosed with hypertension. And it's things like that that are very, very difficult to kind of undo. I could really see that. So, you know, a woman has the has the baby now goes back to a normal blood pressure, but that could have impact in risk adjustments. It could have impact, you know, for for the payer, you know, just sticking with the financial aspect for a sec. But on the other hand, the woman, you know, shows up at a PCP and people are trying to give her <laughs> blood pressure Correct. medication. Correct. So how would you you know, you said it was very difficult to undo 
I guess it's just a matter of trying to say that you're not hypertensive enough times that it finally deletes all of the places within all of the databases that you were mis that the patient was mistagged. I was talking to our faculty about this specifically because I kept hearing the word, yeah, that's real difficult to you know recover from. And I'm like, okay, I understand it's difficult. How do you go about it? And pretty much like you said, every time you present somewhere, you have to, now it's on you to actually ask the question, do you show me as this? Because if you do, that is incorrect. So you, you become much more engaged in your actual care than maybe just a normal person walking in off the street. And sadly, that's fine if the patient is an engaged and empowered patient. On the other right. hand... <laughs> a lot of us are not. Yeah. And then unfortunately, these people are either over-medicated. I mean, this might be... I, I was just reading a study the other day that was talking about how most older Americans are at least on one or two drugs that they really shouldn't be. And maybe this is why. I would agree. We have a lot of things to talk about. One of them is... What you alluded to before, which is when the industry went from paper to digital, when coding went from pushing papers around to a computer, and this was supposed to solve a lot of different problems. Do you see from where you sit that many of the paper problems have gone away? Oh, that's a really good question, Stacy. What's the what's the quote? To err is human, to really screw up takes a computer. <laughs> I love it. You know, we're years down the road now in this transition to an electric office, uh, and not just in healthcare. You know, any kind of business has has started to make the transition to be to be paperless. But part of the problem in healthcare is a uh, a lot of the systems in one practice may not talk to the system in another practice. So we're very disjointed with some of the technologies that are out there. That in and of itself creates some of its own problems. There's a lot of uh, hospital systems and healthcare systems that have done a really good job of trying to unify the systems that are in place both at the hospital and out at the practice. But that's not perfect everywhere. And like I said, it just it yields a whole different kind of problem when some of these systems don't talk to one another. You know, I go to a lot of tech conferences and one thing that is always on the agenda very prominently is the interoperability issue. The fact that there's very little. If we're talking about coding specifically, I would think that coding, because of the fact that that is one language that is universal, might be something that it would be, do I want to say low-hanging fruit? I mean, lower, maybe. Everything is, is relative in order to get the systems to talk together. Yes, you know, it's 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 very easy to submit claims because everything has been kind of drilled down to a code. The part of the problem with some of the systems, though, as people in the practice are trying to find a code, sometimes the computer puts something in front of them and they go, yep, that's it. And they hit they hit enter. What we've uncovered in the past is there are people that understand how to run the system they're sitting in front of, and there are people who really understand coding. To put a finer tip on that, if you take someone who really understands coding, and one of my favorite words in, in the coding world is the highest degree of specificity. So if you understand that a code has to be taken out to its highest degree of specificity, and you look at a computer screen and you realize it's not doing it, well, then you understand the computer is not exactly right and it needs to be tweaked. If someone doesn't truly understand coding and, and the different aspects of how to code, it's very easy for them just to hit a button and say, yep, this is right. That is makes me 
think of something, which is the people that are entering the codes, I'm going to assume are not the doctors and I'm going to assume are not the nurses. In, in, in a lot of cases, no. So is there a lot of mistranslation? In other words, I'm a doctor and I diagnosed a patient and I did a, a procedure and then I communicate this to somebody in the office. How many times or is it a, is it a very common issue that what gets entered into the computer is not what the doctor did or prescribed? I'm assuming it happens all the time. Don't have any kind of percentage. More and more physicians now are rounding or, or seeing a patient with an iPad, and they may be doing virtually all of it. By the time they're done with the patient encounter, they hit a button and everything you know is in the system and it's correct. There are a lot of practices that aren't to that level yet. And this might be a real softball to bring up Practice Medicine Institute, but how does a provider make sure that the people that are doing the coding are translating as accurately as possible the, the instructions of the, the healthcare providers? It goes back to the training and it goes back to the example of somebody who really understands coding versus they just understand the computer system that they're sitting in front of. I can't overemphasize the importance of training and and I appreciate the softball for, for PMI, but training can happen in so many different places. And there are so many, there's so many organizations out there today that are focused on trying to get people to do it right and trying to provide different levels of education. When PMI started back in the early 80s, there were no college curriculums on how to run a practice. You know, at the time, some a lot of our marketing material said, you know, people learn by either going and, and, and getting training or they learn through trial and error. Trial and error can be very expensive and trial and error can even land you in jail. There are certainly more programs available 30 years later, but there's still not a lot of formalized education out there for running a practice. You can go get a, a degree in healthcare or a degree in healthcare administration, but it really doesn't teach the nuts and bolts of running a practice on a day-to-day -day basis. If you were going to give advice to a provider to ensure that their front offices are not misrepresenting diagnoses or codes, but at the same time managing the business aspect, I mean, that, that's I, I can really see how that would be a juggling act. Uh, you know, oh. <laughs> what's, what should they I do? To, I, I used to speak to a lot of physician groups and quarterly staff meetings and things like that. And when we talked about the importance of training, I would say, you know, you all have spent years getting educated and, you know, I'd run through, you spent this many years in medical school and this many years at a residency and this many years specializing and, you know, people around the room are kind of nodding. You can see some chest pumping up. Well, yes, yes, I am a smart individual. And then uh, and say, and a lot of you have turned over your million dollar business to someone that hopefully has a high school diploma. And oh my gosh, you could hear a pin drop and you, you see them start to look at one another and realize that, oh, huh, never thought about it like that. So I tell physicians all the time to, to really pay attention to the staff that they have in place. And, you know, there's things that they need to put in place to measure and monitor and kind of uh, have a sense of how their business is doing on a day to day, a month to month, a year to year basis, and be able to look for trends. And I would even add something to this. I mean, not only are we turning over the practice really to, to somebody in, in the front office and in the cases that you're talking about, but as diagnostic codes and procedural codes are used more to create evidence-based medicine, 
and use evidence-based medicine, those codes also, you know, that that person in the front office could also be controlling patient health. Well, absolutely. As we start to move from a um, quantity to quality, uh, volume to value, maybe our whole payment system is is shifting in healthcare today. And all of that is driven by, uh, like you said, the data that's being collected is coding. The data that's being collected is a lot of different measurements and, and how people how people are presenting and what's being done is a significant part of that. I'm really glad that you brought that up because this is something else that is, I'm sure, a sea change within the, you know, coding training as well as as physician offices, which is value-based, you know, bundled payments and also ICD-10 that's coming around the corner. If you talk about what's the mood, I just had this quick mental picture of two different camps. There's people that are asleep and there's people that are freaked out. Um, <laughs> it's a great visual. I think uh, I think there's a lot of people probably there in the middle that are trying to figure out exactly what some of their next steps are. You know, do I remain independent? Do I join? Uh, do I join a group? Do I associate myself with a larger entity? Sometimes that larger entity brings with it some technology that makes a lot of this a little easier to an easier pill to swallow, if you will. So there's a lot of people in a decision making quandary right now of what do I do next? And quite frankly, a lot of people are the freaked out camp is what is really going to happen 12 months from now? What are things really going to look like five years from now? And how do, how do I position myself and my practice to be uh, in the best possible situation down the road? It definitely would just seem like the mindset and the practices that would be used in the back office to accommodate an FFS, you know, fee-for-service mode of payment, would be very different than how you would code a patient that you were managing in more of a capitated or, you know, value-based way. There was a gastro practice back in the mid-90s that created one of the first IPAs for gastroenterology, and they were going after some capitated contracts. And I helped them build a spreadsheet to track that because even the computer systems they had in place at that time were not capable of it. And now a buddy of mine from Florida called, this is about a year ago, and he said, hey, have you been doing all this reading about volume to value? And Yeah, sure sounds like capitation, doesn't it? <laughs> He's like, yeah, I don't know why they don't call it that. I guess it got a really, really bad rap. Well, it is a little bit different, though, because, you know, in the 90s when they were doing all the capitations, the one thing that was conspicuously absent was a way to measure outcomes. <laughs> Yeah. So they were just like control costs, period. Absolutely. absolutely. No, that's a good point. That really, that's a good point. So, yeah, it's not surprising that if you tell someone be cheap, that they yeah. are. So, yeah, I think that, you know, maybe the term capitation is a bad one just because it, it kind of has an implication of cost without quality. There was a missing component. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of obvious in hindsight, but, you know, I guess yeah. trial and error. <laughs> yeah, we keep tweaking it until it works. There you go. What are you seeing going on out there relative to, why don't we start with what, what you brought up, which is value-based pricing and or bundled payments? Like how are providers retooling what they're doing perhaps in order to accommodate? 
I would think that the coding would be the same. I mean, the, the, the patient still presented and the, what we did is the same. But the reason that we're doing it has, has shifted significantly. In that, uh, in that value-based and in that capitated environment that we're talking about, I mean, we're compensated really to keep people healthy. So we, we, we're measuring and monitoring a lot more. We've uh, implemented a, you know, a real effective callback system. We're trying to track these people uh, and make sure that they stay healthy, which I think is a fantastic transition for healthcare to take. Absolutely. Although at the same time, you know, just based on what we've been talking about, it would seem like, you know, we're talking about coding as the language of healthcare. It would almost seem like, uh, you know, value-based coding is going to be a dialect <laughs> That if if a patient is treated in more of a value-based way, then the diagnosis and the procedures which are being done are going to be probably quite different than those more focused on treating sickness as opposed to promoting wellness. Well, we're going to be we're going to be seeing people for different reasons as well. We're doing a lot more measuring and monitoring than we are, like you said, uh, seeing someone when they're sick. Yeah, exactly. So the diagnosis would be they're well. <laughs> <laughs> and we're keeping them that way. So let's talk about ICD-10 for a moment. Yeah. You, yeah, you had been talking earlier about how it was that there was a, a big difference between those who understood how to work the computer in front of them and those who understood coding. I can imagine that that will only be exacerbated or that there will be even a, a, a greater difference between those two individuals with the introduction of ICD-10. Very much so. ICD-10 really expands the coding system exponentially. It, it takes that highest degree of specificity to a whole new level. Things that used to have one or two ways of coding something now may have 10 or 15 or nine or different choices. So somebody's going to have to really understand uh, the new coding system at a much higher degree. What's interesting is when we first started teaching ICD-10 coding, People really didn't know anything about it, and they would come to class really angry. It was uh, something that was a really different experience for me. I was I was up in Dallas, and with some of the first ICD-10 full-day coding classes that we were putting on, I just got this sense from people. I, in fact, I wrote a couple of articles about it because it was just such a such a unique experience. I had people that were presenting. They were angry. They were ready to retire. Uh, they were throwing up their hands. They were like, you know what? I'm just I just I'm not going to do this. So I made a very, I made a point of being back at that class at about four o'clock when it concluded. And these people were laughing and carrying on and walking out and thanking and hugging the trainer that day. And so everybody left and I sat down with the trainer and I said, what happened? She's like, well, when they really understand it and they go through the, the training and realize that ICD-10 removes a lot of gray area. ICD-10 really gives you the opportunity to code exactly, you know, why someone presented. So I think at the end of the day, it's, it's people, people see it as, well, it's more specific, less gray and a lot less room for error. I can see also what you have been saying, you know, if you're a coder who for the past I don't know how long ICD-9 has been, you know, in, in force, but, you know, even from ICD-8, I don't think it was that much different. So if the, the code for a particular common diagnosis or procedure has been the same for years and years and you've got half of it memorized, the idea. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, you take, you take a, you take a primary care practice and they've got seven or eight or you know, maybe 10 or 15 different codes that they use all day long every day. And they have them memorized. And all of a sudden you tell them that you're going to take that to, you know, you're going to stretch it out to be 75 or 80 and people go, what? I just I'm fascinated by how the the you know the coding and the and the procedures really connect with better patient outcomes and and the role that they play relative to better patient outcomes and one of the things that I see is that if patients are how do patients become part of a a group which is designated as high risk and which everyone agrees needs to be monitored very closely and kept well. In other words, you know, the the diabetic patient population is one that immediately comes to mind or, mm-hmm. you know, people with um, uh, COPD, for example. You know, you know, I work in the, the I do a lot of work with the pharmaceutical industry. And one of the hardest issues for a lot of the that comes up frequently is just simply identifying patients. I mean, for example, you know, I was talking with Kevin Houlihan from Propeller Health the other day about COPD, and there's many COPD patients that are suffering but who remain undiagnosed. It's just interesting to me that... Interesting. Yeah, and I can see how coding really could play a very big role in there. You know, like we think, oh, they're undiagnosed because no one noticed. But there's another layer in there. I mean, maybe someone noticed, but it simply wasn't put into the computer, right? And they fell through the cracks that way. Certainly possible. The other thing that is that's interesting in there is that if you're a provider and you want to do the right thing by patients, but also you want to get reimbursed for it. And, you know, I, I think it's something that is pretty well established that that if you reimburse for that reimbursement is one way to make things happen um, at the at the provider level. So say that you're a senior leadership at a provider and you understand that there are incentives out there to manage certain patient populations, for example. How do you make sure that throughout your entire organization, the the coding and, and all of the sort of logistical and administrative tasks that need to happen in order to manage that patient population at, you know, kind of this coding level? Like, how, how do you begin to think about having all of those dominoes fall properly so that you can get the reimbursement that you deserve? Let me go about this in two different directions. The first is, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about and a lot of the, this is certainly not, I'm I'm not putting this at your feet as, as intentional, but something that I hear and I don't want people to miss here is so many of the things that you've talked about as far as reimbursement about the diagnosis and the procedural coding, it's like, how do we do this so that we, you know, maximize reimbursement, if you will. We certainly teach people, hey, do what you do document what you do, get paid for what you did. You know, there's a lot of people that are billing inappropriately. They did the work, but they simply didn't document it. And as far as a carrier or Medicare or, you know, any payer is concerned, if you didn't document it, you didn't do it. So that's part of the problem is is capturing everything correctly that was done and then billing it accordingly and getting paid accordingly. The second half of that answer is, You've got to have everybody on the same page with the uh, scenario that you just described uh, and senior leadership and providers and people in the front and the back office. Everybody has to be uh, aware of 
how this system that we're working with works. And I, I guess I default back to my training mode. You know, that's some, that's some very specific training to a, a group of people with many different layers. And where could a practice turn for help in order to make, make this happen? There are certainly organizations, there are organizations like ours that do this, but there are a lot of local, I think there's a lot of local and regional help for people that they just may not be aware of. A lot of state medical societies do a fantastic job of education like this, uh, local medical societies in some markets, uh, a lot of specialty organizations. So depending on a provider's specialty, if they are a part of a state or a national association, I would look to them first. I would look to them for educational opportunities along these lines. Obviously, PMI is a major entity within the training space. If someone were going to look to PMI for some help, where could they go for more information? Well, they could certainly go to our website, uh, pmimd.com. That would be a great place to start. We're in a lot of local markets. We typically are connected to a hospital in a local market or sometimes a state or local medical society. But um, going to our homepage would probably be the gateway to find out if we're in their area. And we've also, over the last 10 years, developed quite a distance learning catalog of programs and training opportunities. That's fantastic. It has been a pleasure speaking with you today, David. I have learned a lot. Yes, yeah, Stacey, it's been a lot of fun. Links to everything discussed during the episode today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. I'll tell you the other thing that you will find at RelentlessHealthValue.com, and that is a way to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe, the cool thing is that you don't have to remember to go to the website every week to download the new episode. It will automatically be sent to you in one of two ways. The first way is you can type in your email address in the, there's a, a sidebar on the right hand side of the website where you will find a place that you could type in your email address and then you will get an email once a week with a, a link to download the episode. So that's one way to go. The second is also in that same right hand sidebar on the Relentless Health Value website, you will find a large orange dot. If you click on that dot, then you'll get taken to a place where you can click on the subscribe button in iTunes. If you click on that, then each week your iTunes will automatically download the episode, which you could choose to listen to on your computer or on the podcast app on your mobile phone. If you enjoyed this episode, please, I beg you, uh, it would be really, really helpful if you would rate and review the show either on iTunes or interact with us on Twitter. Our uh, Twitter handle is Relentless with only one S, health. So Relentless with only one S, health. I would love to hear from you. It, we would find it very inspiring over here at the Relentless Health Value podcast. I thank you so much for tuning in and so much for spending the time with us. Thank you.